Hello and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. Today on the podcast, as we've done a few times in the past, we actually have someone else's podcast. Uh, it was another podcast that I was on. Uh, this time, it was the neoliberal podcast from the Progressive Policy Institute, hosted by Jeremiah Johnson. And we were discussing the state of encryption and various attacks on encryption by Congress uh, with myself and Alex Stapp, who is also from the Progressive Policy Institute. So with that, I'll just hand it off to Jeremiah to take you into that very fun podcast discussion. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical, bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of the modern monocle, stopping the copyright bullies from pulling the wall on us, facing and taking on all the Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Neoliberal Podcast, now part of the Progressive Policy Institute. I'm your host, Jeremiah Johnson, and joining me today is Alex Stapp. He's the Director of Technology Policy at PPI, and also joining us is Mike Masnick, who is the founder and CEO of the Copia Institute and an editor at TechDirt. And today, we're talking about encryption, the various encryption bills that are attempting to make their way through Congress, the concept of encryption and perfectly encrypted systems, whether they exist, whether backdoors should exist, all of these things are kind of in the discourse right now, and it's the topic for today's episode. So Alec, Mike, thank you for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks. All right, so Alec, I'll toss it to you first, and we'll just, you know, everybody feel free to jump in whenever, but what sort of legislation do we have actually making its way through Congress right now? Like, what does the legislation say? How far along are we? Um, what do we think the likelihood is that something major is going to happen here? Yeah, it's a great question, Jeremiah. So I think there's two pieces, key pieces of legislation that have been introduced uh, in the last few months. So uh, the first piece of legislation was the EARNIT Act of 2020. Uh, EARNIT stands for, because it always has to be an acronym in D.C., so it's <laughs> Eliminating Abusive and Rampant Neglect of Interactive Technologies. Uh, and this came up, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's almost like a backdoor piece of legislation to, to weaken encryption. Uh, the literal text doesn't have the word encryption in it. All it says is that it recommends that uh, a, a council will be appointed uh, to recommend best practices for technology companies. Um, and those best practices are not defined by the act. Uh, it will be chaired by the current attorney general, whoever that is. Obviously, today that's, that's William Barr. Uh, and then the uh, Speaker of the House, Majority Leader in the Senate, I believe, get to appoint a couple positions and they make up uh, a multi-person council who, who proposes best practices. But the key way this bill is constructed is that uh, the attorney general gets to veto uh, or accept the practices unilaterally. So it vests a lot of power in the attorney general's hands. Um, and everyone kind of just presumes because William Barr has been talking about uh, how much he wants to create a backdoor for encryption and how much it stymies U.S. law enforcement that one of the best practices they will say is that you're, you have insufficient um, protection if you actually don't include a backdoor for law enforcement. So that's, that's presumed to be the outcome of it. Uh, and then the second piece of legislation that's currently working its way through Congress, introduced more recently, is the Lawful Access to Encrypted Data Act of 2020. Uh, and this one is just a more direct frontal assault 
on encryption. And it literally, has, at least this one has the word encryption in it. And it says that, that platforms must include um, some kind of access for law enforcement. And so I think there's a low likelihood either of these things passes this cycle just because not much will pass in an election year. Um, I think Bill Barr has become too personally identified with these, with this fight for any Democrats to sign on to an undivided Congress. Um, but I think there's a chance it could pass if something extreme were to happen, like a, a terrorist act or something related to encryption or some you know, precipitating event. And then this conversation will keep keep building. That's a good jumping off point because um, a, a terrorist attack is one of the things that you hear about as a hypothetical. You know what? It's the great Kiefer Sutherland 24, you know, uh, scenario. Like what if there's a terrorist with a nuclear bomb and we got to get into his cell phone or, or something? I don't know. It's always framed as dramatically as possible. Um, you also did see a real world incident that wasn't quite that dramatic, but, you know, in the aftermath of the San Bernardino terrorist attack, um, where uh, a bunch of people died, uh, to some gunmen, the FBI and Apple had this dispute over encryption where they essentially were, it looked like they were headed for a big legal showdown, right? Over whether or not Apple had to provide, uh, essentially a backdoor into the shooter's phone. Yeah, and, and that was actually um, there was a lot of craziness in the terms of how that was done, and that they were trying to make use of the All Writs Act, which is you know goes back to basically the founding of the country to to allow courts to order um, uh, you know people or companies to do certain things to support the government, uh, and and they wanted effectively Apple to um, uh, you know abuse its systems to to install a different operating system without uh without the encryption key locking mechanism onto the phone of of the shooter in the san bernardino case uh and what a lot of people pushed back on in that case was uh they said you know that government has other ways to often get into the phones and that is actually how that case ended which was eventually the justice department admitted that they had figured out some way to get into that phone uh, you know, whether it's through there's a bunch of different third party technologies um, that will claim to be able to crack a phone. And that's, you know, one of one of the issues. I do want to go back and, and point out something on Alex's summary of the, the bills. The the Earned Act um, is specifically focused around what is now referred to as CSAM, child sexual abuse material. So so that that counsel and the best practices is supposed to be directed to how tech platforms deal with CSAM. And on the encryption front, the bill changed. Um, the, uh, Alex's description, it's still kind of like that, but the bill changed when they went through markup uh, and, and put through a manager's amendment such that the counsel's best practices now mean nothing. In the original bill, the earn it part of the earn it act was that you had to follow those best practices in order to get section 230 protections, which is the, the intermediate liability. I don't know how far you want to go down that tangent. Uh, and in the revised bill, um, that no longer the, the panel can make best practices recommendations, however they want. Um, and there's nothing that has no impact whether or not anyone follows it. It's just a, a, a list of recommendations. And also specifically, on the question of encryption, they added an amendment, which was uh, Senator Leahy's amendment, which appears to say that it, that the Earned Act does not um, will not cannot be used to outlaw encryption. But there are loopholes in it. So Senator Leahy tried to deal with the fact that everybody said, oh, well, the first thing that that Bill Barr will do if this becomes law is outlaw encryption. And so Leahy put in some language that 
might or might not get rid of that concern. Yeah. So let's take a step back because we've kind of jumped right into the legislation <laughs> and the details of that. But I don't want to assume that every single listener to the podcast uh, has already kind of a sterling idea of exactly what encryption even is and, and what are the kind of technical things we're talking about. So if I was somebody new to this kind of discussion and I just wanted to know literally how does encryption work and, and what does it mean to, to build a backdoor in? Like I, I get the idea obviously of, you know, things are password protected, but what, do, what are we really talking about on, on a data level when we talk about this, these messages are encrypted and we want, we have to build a backdoor. Can we, can we do some defining around those terms? I, I can take a stab at it. it it's, you know, and, and part of part of the complexity here is that it's extremely complex. So any simplified description of it will not be entirely correct, and we'll have certain issues with it. But I will still try to do a somewhat simplified uh, explanation of this, recognizing that this is not a perfect description. So, but I mean, you know, in its simplest form, basically what's happening is if I'm sending. Uh, Alec a message and I want it end-to-end -end encrypted to him, uh, he, he will have some sort of public key. We each have public keys and private keys. Uh, and I can look at his public key and say, I am encrypting with my private key a message that should only go to Alec with his public key. Uh, and then that becomes encrypted. It goes to Alec and he has his his own personal key and should be the only one who can open that message, which does two things. One, it, it limits the message so that only Alex should be able to read it because he should be the only one with the key. Uh, and also he can confirm that I was the one who sent it because I have encrypted it with my key. Um, so that's at its very simplest level. Basically you can send a message that is locked so that only the people that you are sending it to can read it and they can confirm that you were the one who sent it. Uh, you know, anyone else will just see, uh, you know, a mess of yeah, a uh, scramble good, kind of, you know, scrambled text or whatever. Now, the idea in its simplest form of like a backdoor concept to encryption is basically to add a third key, uh, you know, a, a, another key that somebody could get into that text and and unencrypted. And in this case, usually law enforcement, whether it's police or or federal justice department, whatever, they, they want a, uh, their own key that will access that content as well. And they, they're willing to put certain limitations on that. The problem is, is that the math behind what makes all of this work is extremely complicated and still creates potential problems and potential ways in which the encryption can fail. Adding in that third key uh, doesn't just make it a little more risky. It makes it a ridiculously large amount more risky that somebody else will figure out how to get in and that will break that encryption and no longer have that, that information and data protected. So this is something I've, I've seen there be some disagreement about where if we add in these backdoors, are we, is there a way to sustainably do that in a, in a way that does not make the system, um, like you said, way, way more complex and way, way more risky. Um, and, and I'm kind of trying to take the the devil's advocate view here because I, I tend to be a pretty strong supporter of encryption myself. But why is it so hard to just build in, okay, well, there's a if there's got to be a set of keys, we just give one to the government and they use it whenever, you know, it's appropriate. Why would that make the system less secure for third parties who are not the government? So there's there's a few different answers to that. One is um, 
one is just whether or not you trust the government to use the key only in the appropriate circumstances. But yeah, that's, that's that's not answering that, your that, that's question. the Edward that's, Snowden mm-hmm. objection, right? <laughs> right, right. There's there's the, that that key will be abused. But the but the more specific issue is that to add that extra key, um, and again, like this gets into real like technical complexity that's not worth getting too deep into the weeds to. But like the simplest way of thinking about it is like you're you're just opening up a huge uh, area of attack for those with malicious intent who want to get into that. Uh, and it is not as simple as like, well, each of the now you have you know three parties that have to protect the keys. That's part of it, right? So you have you know one aspect is if uh, if a if someone with malicious intent, whether it is you know some kids trying to do some hacking or nation states or whoever, um, you know, want to cause lots of problems, they can now target the law enforcement key, whatever that is. You know, they, they now have sort of a central source where they could get immense power if they can figure out how to get access to that. To that. That's one aspect of it. The second is just in the setup of adding that extra key, you are doing something very, very complicated. And, and encryption itself is extremely complicated to keep it protected. There's, there's a lot of sort of very complex math involved in it and complex coding. Um, and very little changes can create huge problems. And we've seen, you know, certain forms of encryption, people discover, you know, holes and and uh, vulnerabilities in those forms of encryption. And to add that third key, what you're really doing is adding in a vulnerab- vulnerability, um, and no one really knows how big a vulnerability that is, right? You can say we're adding in this extra little you know, side passage for law enforcement, but we don't know how big that side passage is. And lots of hackers, uh, and again, you know, potentially private, potentially criminal, potentially nation state will be searching for other ways into that passageway. Um, and it is very difficult, you know, beforehand to predict how, how risky that is to the point that most people think that it, it, you know, it opens up lots of possibilities for people to get into all kinds of encrypted communications. And recently I was listening to your conversation with Albert Wenger, the, the venture capitalist, Mike, and he talked about potential compromise uh, solution would be a key escrow system. And he made it sound like a much safer or much more limited solution. Could you explain how that would work in, in more detail and, and why it is or isn't a good solution? Yeah, I mean, so the the key escrow idea is, uh, you know, it, it's it's effective. I mean, there's a few different ways that that could be done, right? So, um, you know, one is that you have some, you know, someone else who's sort of ha- holding on to things, and so, you know, and, and the you know the way this is usually proposed is something like law enforcement doesn't really get access to it, but if they need access to um, uh, you know, to an iPhone, they can go to Apple and Apple can effectively give it to them where Apple is in that case acting as the as the escrow service. There are other ways that you can do it where, um, you know, within within a, a lot of encryption systems, you can do things where you have sort of like multi-key access where you need, you know, in the simplest form, 
you know, there are three keys that can access this message. Uh, you need two of them in order to, to unlock the message. So it could be something where it's like law enforcement has a key. They can't access it without Apple also helping or the individual whose phone it is. If you have two out of the three, then you can access it. And that's, you know, that's sort of a common version of the kind of key escrow setup where you have multi multi-key, multi-signature kind of setup to it. Um, and again, like that, you know, that's, that benefit that that's certainly better than just saying like, okay, you know, anyone who has this key, you know, this law enforcement key gets to access whatever or whatever. Um, but it, it's still, you're creating still a much, uh, wider field for, for vulnerabilities and, and, you know, it's tough to say what will happen with those and whether or not somebody will find uh, something to break and to break into everything. But just adding that setup of the multi keys opens up a lot of possibilities where if uh, everything is not programmed exactly perfectly, there will be problems down the road. So it sounds like you're making this argument around complexity that if you take a really complex system, like like you said, has very complicated math, it has a lot of work put into it, it has a lot of moving pieces, and you add even more complexity, even more holes in the wall, that that just inherently will make the system weaker. Is, is that kind of the argument that anytime you mess with a complex system and add more layers of complexity on top of it, there are just more opportunities uh, for potential breaches? Yeah, I, I think that's one way of looking at it. I mean, I think part of it is that like, you know, if you talk to cryptographers, um, you know, they sort of will say that that everything is inherently, you know, at risk and insecure. It's a question of how insecure and 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 nobody really knows, you know, until somebody punches a hole through that wall, you know, how how strong or weak it is. Um, you know, it's not it, it's you know, it's not a situation like a physical wall where we can, you know, we can understand the physics and, and run models and tests and say this is this will withstand, you know, this level of wind or rain or whatever. Um, you know, there's a lot of com complexity and, and there are tons of people who are, you know, hacking away at these systems all the time and trying to figure out ways to, to break, you know, different elements of encryption all the time. And we don't really know how big a risk things are until it's too late. So the less complexity and the less paths in that you leave open, um, hopefully that means the, the more secure you'll be able to keep those things. So if complexity is inherently a problem and, and kind of tinkering with things and messing with things and adding more ways in is inherently destabilizing and, and is going to make encryption weaker, do we have examples of that happening in the past? Are, are there any like good concrete examples we can point to where we added a layer of complexity at some point and it ended up being exploited by a particular bad actor or a particular group? And in retrospect, years later, now we know that. Um, I don't know if like that exact analogy exists, mainly because we don't tend to... Um, try to add that that we haven't you know there aren't that many cases where people have sort of been pushed to add that layer of complexity um there are certainly lots of examples of things that were formerly considered secure encryption or or um you know securely encrypted technologies that that fell by the wayside you know we've had issues with um 
you know, this, the encryption that, that protects a lot of the, of internet traffic, um, uh, people finding holes in that, you know, it's, it's been a few years and I'm blanking on they had, uh, there, there were, you know, a, a few different efforts to, to rush around and try and patch, you know, most of the internet because somebody discovered a, a huge, uh, gaping hole within like the SSL technology, which is, you know, what was, was the heartbleed, heartbleed, yeah, that, heartbleed, uh, uh, bug. Th- there was heart, heartbleed yeah. and there was one other and I, I'm, I get them mixed up. So I think it was heartbleed where they discovered basically that SSL, which locks down your, uh, web traffic, um, and, and protects it from, from prying eyes, um, had a massive hole in it uh, and a very dangerous one. And everyone sort of had to rush around like crazy to try and fix it. And there've been a few instances like that, where suddenly someone discovers a major vulnerability within an encrypted system. Um, and oftentimes what has to happen is a bunch of people have to get to work very quietly and try not to leak out the fact that this this vulnerability exists and that people know about it and people try and do as much as they can to patch it before announcing things publicly but sometimes that doesn't happen sometimes we just find out mm-hmm. that something is insecure and then people just have to scramble so we we've been talking a lot about the technical side um and, and we've kind of been you know diving into the details but i think all three of us are to one degree or another, pretty strong encryption advocates. So I'd love to get a little bit more philosophical um, <laughs> and turn to why do we think that having strong encryption is such a good idea in the first place? Like if I'm, if I'll force myself to play devil's advocate, you know, what are the trade-offs here? Obviously, strong encryption means that we're going to have more private communications and, and things like that. But what are we giving up, if anything? When we when we do this, do we think that it actually will make law enforcement's job harder? I, I mean, Alec, you talk to people with a lot of national security concerns. There, this is typically framed as a national security argument. Do you think there's a legitimate argument there that that we are losing something, um, even if we think it's worth losing in the name of privacy? Well, from my perspective, and uh, we'll have, I'll have a follow up for Mike to explain some more the technical details, but. I think I view it as a, a double-edged sword. And so I, I do believe law enforcement, when they say that, you know, they'd like to have every tool in the tool belt. They'd like to be able to access any communication or any data hosted in the cloud whenever they wanted. I'm sure it would make their jobs at least marginally easier. Uh, and they often, like Mike mentioned, in terms of the Earn It Act, they're often talking about um, child exploitation or child sexual uh, abuse content. Um, and it's it's obviously a very sympathetic case. And then the other Second most common case you're about is terrorism, and you know there's t- ticking t- ticking bomb somewhere, and we suspect that uh, in the terrorist phone there is the critical information that will be the difference between life and death for a n- number of Americans. And so, I believe there is a national security uh, case here. To what extent? How common are these kind of events? Um, what actual gains are you make? I mean, there's a lot of uncertainty around those, those questions. And when I said it's a double-edged sword, I think that uh, that these that encryption actually makes a lot of our systems safer. So there are bad actors who want to attack our systems um, that can't do so today because we have strong encryption throughout the system. And so my follow-up for Mike is I've heard that argument a lot. I believe it, but I don't have the, the technical expertise in this area. Um, do you explain like how encryption protects things more broadly? Because I know everyone thinks about like encrypted messaging. They know that, hey, the government can't read my messages. They're encrypted. But 
I don't, I, I'm familiar that encryption is elsewhere in the digital infrastructure, but I don't know <laughs> exactly, exactly where or what it does. I know it's good. Yeah, I mean, right. Encryption does does a whole bunch of things, um, and and uh, and you know, at the simplest level, is like you know, uh, when you're buying stuff online and you don't want uh, other people to know your credit card number, that is encrypted, right? So, um, secure transactions is a a huge part of of encryption right now, uh, and I think everybody can understand that they would probably prefer not to have their credit card numbers uh, freely accessible floating across the web. And, and this is kind of important, you know, in terms of the way that the internet works, right? When I am sending a message across in, in the, you know, pre-encryption internet, um, you know, if I were sending a message to Alec again, um, that is in plain text and any computer in between me and Alec that that message travels on, because this is the way, you know, uh, information travels across the internet. It goes from computer to computer to computer until it reaches its destination. Any of those computers in the interim could, could grab a copy of that. Um, and it, it was certainly possible to set up machines that were designed to, uh, you know, grab and store a copy of any of the information that was flowing through it. And you could track all sorts of information that was flowing. Now, if that information is encrypted, then you just get that, you know, garbage text that you, that you can't read and you can't understand. Um, and so that protects all of that, uh, that information. So, at, you know, at the simplest level, it protects the kind of information that you don't want flowing out there like credit cards or, or whatnot. Um, to a, a next level, uh, you know, and this is where a lot of the um, SSL, TLS, HTTPS acronyms uh, in terms of securing your traffic, um, you know, before, before most websites did that, um, lots of people, including like your ISP, whether you know Comcast, Verizon, AT&T, whoever, could track which websites you were visiting in great detail. Uh, you know, every URL they were getting a copy of that. Um, when you add in the encryption layer above that, they know that you're you know trying to reach, say, Google, but they can't necessarily tell what your searches are. So it's protecting. You know, they can still find out the the basics of you know which website in general you're going to, but they can't figure out what you're doing uh, on that website. So it's protecting your privacy in terms of how you're you're surfing on, on that front. Um, so that is you know those are sort of the more common things, the things that would probably impact everyone in terms of you know whether or not. Um, you know, their their transactions and private information is secure, but also like whether or not their ISPs or other companies in some cases can spy on specifically what they're doing while they're surfing around the web. Um, those are kind of common cases and common areas where uh, encryption becomes becomes really important. And I, I should note, you know, on the, the question of national security, there's actually a split, you know, uh, and, and I think it's important to note that like, the law enforcement folks, which generally is the DOJ, FBI, um, and and various local law enforcement, you know, the uh, New York District Attorney is uh, is is big on this, and and a, a few other law enforcement folks, they're the ones who are really complaining about it. A lot of people on the like NSA side of the national security fence are actually believers in strong encryption, and they don't they. Um, you know, actually come down on the other side of this debate, which I'm not often on the same side of the debate of any debate with the NSA, but <laughs> <laughs> uh, on, 
on encryption, they're they're actually fairly good. Not you know, there are times where there are moments where they're a little bit questionable. Well, I'd but, imagine that they're you know they're not worried about catching murderers. They're worried about you know preventing Chinese state espionage, right? Exactly, right. So so they recognize, and certainly you know other people within the national security establishment recognize the importance of encryption in terms of protecting our own national secrets and protecting our own politicians and diplomats and and our own companies and our own you know cor- corporations from from being subject to to espionage um and so they recognize the value of it so there is this kind of split um it's the law enforcement folks that i that i think um are, are more concerned and and then on that front again like there is, there are certainly cases and there will certainly be cases where there will be certain information they will not be able to get uh, because of encryption. So so to, to present their side of the argument, that is that is the concern. That is the trade-off. There will be certain information. I think the response to that is how often is that really the case? And it's fairly limited. For a while, the FBI was going around saying that they had uh, – now I'm forgetting because this was like over a year ago. I think they said they had 11,000 devices that they could not crack. Um, and then people filed some FOIA requests and tried to find out what the details were. And the FBI backed down and, and admitted that, <laughs> oh, actually, they were wrong. 11,000 was was not the number. And they would come back with a real number, but it was somewhere less than 1,000. I, I remember the 11,000 terrorist attacks that led to. So you Yes. Know. <laughs> they, they, like, they like the number 11,000. <laughs> well, for, for I, this reason. is difficult for me, but I am going to keep trying to play um, – devil's advocate so that we don't have three guys all just agreeing um let's on on a theoretical conceptual level like at the very core should citizens be able to have things that the government can never access no matter what no matter what warrants no matter what emergency situations because most people who are in favor of backdoors are not saying like remove encryption from your credit card transactions on the internet. They're not like, they think encryption is good. They just want the government to have access in emergencies. If that's, that's the strongest, you know, that's the charitable version of this argument. And theoretically, does it make sense for there to be an area that the government can, if we had like a perfect form of encryption, that the government could just never, ever access? Like, is that something that, that theoretically we would support? I mean, it's that's and and to be fair, like, that is the way that they position this. They they always talk about warrant proof, right? You know, and they say, you know, they they make it clear we don't want we don't want access to information without warrants. We want in the cases where, you know, uh, you know, so like if somebody the analog example that they like to use, if somebody had a safe, if we got a warrant, we could force open the safe because we had a warrant and it was, you know, a court made sure it was, um, you know, within the bounds of the fourth amendment. Um, you know, I, again, like I don't find, I, I understand the argument. Um, I don't find it particularly compelling. I think there have always been areas that were effectively warrant proof, right? There were, uh, you know, conversations that two people might have in person um, that nobody, there was no recording of or no record of. There's no warrant that the FBI can issue that, you know, they can ask people to say what happened, but that is, that is still screws a, in your you thumb. Know. That's what it was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and like, or, you know, people have always had, you know, uh, different forms of encryption in terms of just basic ciphers, right? I mean, so I could communicate on paper with if I had like a one-time pad situation uh, and I could communicate with someone um, 
you know, they could try and pressure pressure me into revealing what that message was, but it is still effectively warm proof. There are things where it's like I could have sent, uh, you know, I, I keep using the example of me sending messages to Alec because that's where all my secret information goes. So if I were to send a message to Alec that I didn't want the FBI to ever read and I sent it on paper uh, and then I asked him when he's finished reading it to burn it, that is now warrant proof. So this is this can this can be seen as like the the really like mass production of warrant proof communications whereas previously you know they it, it was particular types of communication that were warrant proof now it's like we've got a paper trail for everything and it's all warrant proofed in in a sense yeah yeah but that's not true either right so and i think this is actually an important point also how much of our communications are actually fully encrypted is extremely limited. And, and I think that is really, really important and gets missed in a lot of this conversation. What, what people are talking about, you know, like the encrypted iPhone, uh, it is very, very limited how much of that information is actually encrypted. If you back up your information to iCloud, which lots of people with an iPhone do, um, most of that is not encrypted. And the FBI can go to Apple with a warrant. It is not warrant proof. They can go to Apple with a warrant and get access to a lot of that information in iCloud. In fact, in the San Bernardino case that you brought up at the beginning that sort of set off a lot of this debate, what happened was the FBI screwed up and they they reset i forget the exact details of what happened but they they reset the iphone in an attempt to try and get at the content on there and in that process they wiped out the backup that they could have gone to apple and and gotten um and you know that brings up like this you know you talk about like now we're in this different world uh where you know so much is warm proof and i would argue the reverse is actually true we're now in this world where so much of our communication is actually recorded somewhere where that wasn't the case in the past right Fair. You know, historically if i was to talk with any of you or you know have a conversation with you or even like sending letters to any of you you know there would be no backup of any of that information and it would disappear now because everything goes through computers and everything is recorded in some place or another there is much more access to information or even just like our location right i mean all of us have phones that record our location in some way or another all of this information is now available to law enforcement so law enforcement today has so much more information than they ever had in the past. The idea that because they can't get this one little piece of information that they also didn't have access to in the past, that has made a different world and made it harder for them to solve crimes, um, just really seems to to go against the the reality of of history. And I, and I think one of the things that's ironic about this debate, especially when we talk about the mass encryption, however however large you think this issue has become in terms of communications being uh, encrypted by default is that it cuts against the the reasoning of why we should allow this for going after terrorists or you know um child predators because those are the exact kind of exceptional cases where those people are motivated to actually use the tools um that are that are um these cases where it would have been warrant proof to, to before this even existed and so that reminds me of my favorite example um of a leaker who knew what they were doing and, and exploited the system as it is, uh, David Petraeus, when he was leaking uh, state secrets to a journalist, uh, they actually used a shared Gmail account. So, Mike, this is what I want us to do from now on. That's <laughs> what we're going to do. Instead of encrypted messaging, right. we share a Gmail account, you open a draft, you write the message to the person, they log in, read the message in drafts, it never gets sent anywhere, never leaves the Gmail account, and after you read it, you delete the message, right? And so that's, that has nothing to do with encryption. It's a, 
it's a convenient way to get around actually having any paper trail ever. And once it enters that person's brain, they delete it and there's no, there's no trace. And so I think there are many other methods for communicating um, surreptitiously without relying on encryption. And the most motivated people will use those methods because they're at that highest risk of, of being found out. Yeah. And, and just to add to that, even, even within the encryption space, I mean, so, you know, certainly that's true that there are other ways to communicate that don't use technology encryption, but use other forms of encryption or secrecy to, to avoid detection. But also, you know, there are other people making encryption tools and they're not all based in the US. And so, you know, the, the ones that you are most worried about using encryption, um, you know, in, in child exploitation matters or terrorist matters, which are the, 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 the two key ones that people talk about, you know, it's, it's not likely they're going to care if Apple is forced to put a backdoor into their encryption. They're going to go use somebody else's encryption and the U.S. government is still not going to have any access or law enforcement is still not going to have any access to that content. So it's it's not like this, you know, forcing a backdoor on on companies like Apple and Google will actually fix the situation that they claim is is the problem. I mean, I, I feel like it would fix some of it, though. Like, clearly, you're going to have some very smart predators and some very smart terrorists, but I'm continually surprised how many dumb criminals there are. And that, yeah, ex- that extends is, that, all the way to terrorists. There are a lot of really incompetent terrorists. But that's that's true today. Uh, and, you know, and so that's how so many of these plots get discovered. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, because, you know, the the, the encryption, I, I've, I can't think of any sort of terrorist attack where it has later come out that encryption was actually you know, a problem in, in discovering it. Right. You know, we have things like the San Bernardino case, like they knew who did it. Right. And they had, all, <laughs> you know, they just, they just wanted, you know, more confirmation to, or to see if anything was on the phone. And I think the deal was once they finally did get into his phone, they found there was nothing there. It was, it was completely wasted effort. Um, and so, you know, yes, you know, like, it's not just criminals who are stupid. I mean, when it comes to communicating secretly, everyone is right. I mean, we all leave a trace somehow or another. And so like with a little bit of, you know, actual law enforcement detective work, almost all of these things can be dealt with. Like, yes, in some cases it might require a little bit more work than it might have otherwise. But again, in almost all those cases, law enforcement will have access to much more information than they ever had in the past. I mean, you go back 10, 15, 20 years and the tools that law enforcement had to track people down or to find out this information is is vastly less than they would have today, even if all of their actual communications were encrypted. So moving back to the political side, one of the things that's interesting to me is thinking about how this breaks down on a party line, because it seems to me like there's not necessarily going to be a clean party break. Like, like obviously, Alec, you pointed out that nobody in the Democratic Party likes Bill Barr or, or trusts anyone in the Trump administration. That's just – that's a given. So for that reason, you might not see a ton of Democrats. But that doesn't mean that all Democrats are – inherently opposed to passing one of these acts, to passing the LAED Act or the Earn It Act. Um, there might be a split between national security Democrats who are more hawkish and and more dovish, um, you know, socially progressive Democrats maybe. There also might be a split that's very interesting in the Republican Party because certainly there are a lot of, uh, you know, security hawks in the Republican Party. But there's also 
a significant amount of civil libertarians. You know, you're Justin Amash, you're Rand Paul. I, I wonder, are either of you guys familiar with like, are, are the civil libertarians in the Republican Party in favor of this kind of thing? Or are they, you know, more in favor of the, the privacy arguments? Um, yeah, they, they've, they're great. Uh, the civil libertarian wing of the Republican party has been great on encryption and, and saying like, no, uh, and then, you know, pushing back on these kinds of bills and, you know, putting holds on them or, or trying to put in amendments, um, you know, in both the house and the Senate, um, you know, the, I think they, they've been, um, you know, really strong defenders of, of encryption. And yeah, it, this is one of those issues that doesn't fall along party lines in, in traditional party lines in any sense. Um, you know, you have, it's, it's almost always like former prosecutors uh, <laughs> in, in both parties who, who are pushing for breaking encryption and, and um, you know, for, for um, backdoors or, or um, you know, the ability to have, you know, warm, And there are, a surprising amount of people in Congress who are former district yes. attorneys, former prosecutors, you know. Yes, and in both parties. Uh, and they tend to be really bad on this issue. Um, and so, yeah, you have these sort of odd coalitions, I think, that form in Congress uh, on this issue. And it's it's not as easily predictable um, as, as certainly as some other issues. In terms of if you play a little prognosticator for us, Mike, what do you think about prospects this term? or next term, depending on how the presidential election goes and uh, how potential swings in both chambers of Congress go. Um, what are the chances we see any movement on the encryption issue legislatively? Uh, it's it's tricky to say. Um, I don't think that there's really enough momentum, and I think there's enough outcry um, that I, I think on, on the pure encryption issues don't get very far. So like the LAED Act... I think that's effectively. I think that's dead in the water. I don't think that serves any real purpose other than than signaling. Um, the Earned Act is a little trickier, um, and and uh, you know just recently there was uh, an attempt, I guess by by Senator Graham to kind of shove it through the Senate, um, even though there's no companion in the House yet. But um, because the Earned Act is designed to look like it is going after section 230 of the communications decency act and being about content moderation on internet platforms, which is an issue that is, uh, also bipartisanly confusing, but <laughs> in a way where everybody kind of hates section 230 often for conflicting reasons. And again, that's probably a whole different podcast. Um, we could do a whole so, hour on, on how confused people are about section yes. 230. <laughs> yes. Uh, often for directly conflicting reasons, in, in, you know, but they all hate it. Um, and so the Earn It Act one is a little bit scary to me because that sort of hides the issue of encryption and it pretends that it's not about encryption at all and yet could be used. And it sort of tried to tie encryption to 230 and sort of tried to piggyback on the fact that everybody hates 230 to sneak through an anti-encryption uh, bill. And so that could potentially have legs, um, probably not this year, but in a new Congress certainly could be something and is definitely something worth watching very closely if this is an issue that you're concerned about. Well, if just being frank here, we've talked a lot about the Senate, but if Nancy Pelosi doesn't want the bill to pass, it will not pass. So it seems it seems germane to ask, what does Nancy Pelosi think about this? Like the Democrats control the House and by any reasonable estimation will continue to control the House post-2020. So do we know what the House Democratic leadership thinks of this kind of bill? 
Um, I don't know if they've actually weighed in on on the encryption part specifically. I mean, again, like Pelosi has certainly um, voiced concerns about Section 230. Uh, again, confused. I mean, almost any politician talking about Section 230 will probably have a confused <laughs> comment about it. Um, and so, again, that sort of worries me that that a a bill like the Earn It Act. Uh, if disguised enough to be really about 230 and to hide the encryption parts, that could get uh, Democratic leadership support. But I, I don't know. I'd like to believe that um, uh, you know that the leadership wouldn't do that and would understand enough, like that this bill really is an attack on 230. Um, but um, I don't know. I mean, I think as is, if the bill were to go through right now, I would hope that 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 Pelosi would not buy into it just because it, it really is, you know, handing off a lot of power to the attorney general among other things. I mean, you, you, you do have the issue of like, um, there are, again, there are some former prosecutors up in the Democratic yeah. leadership. Well, and I was going to specifically mention Kamala Harris because this podcast was recorded on um, August 7th. By the time it comes out, uh, we will likely know who Joe Biden's vice president uh, is going to be. And, there's a very good chance. I would say at least 50-50 it's going to be Kamala Harris. And if, even if she's not the vice presidential pick, there's a decent chance she might be the next attorney general. Like this – you know, I, I feel like she is a really relevant person and she is also a former prosecutor who uh, yes. who has – let's say that the Democratic Party is mixed <laughs> in their feelings about her her past as a prosecutor. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so – um, I, I think that that there there are real concerns there, um, and and I, I mean she's my senator <laughs> uh, out out here in California. Uh, I'm I'm not necessarily a huge fan of hers, and I, I when she was attorney general here in California, I ended up arguing with her staff quite a bit on, on a whole bunch of different things. You're such a um, troublemaker, Mike. <laughs> yes, <laughs> um, you know and. and and so I don't know how that plays out, though, in terms of the actual politics of things. You know, does that suddenly get Republicans more concerned about about a, a bill that that punches through encryption? Maybe. Right. Um, but I, I don't know. And I, I wouldn't even dare handicap <laughs> the, the chances <laughs> based on you know what happens over the next, you know. Five, six months. Yeah, I get that. I mean, I'm always st stuck between really wanting you to just throw out an actual number. There's an 80% chance <laughs> it passes. And, and knowing that even if you did, that number would probably be, you know, BS because who knows. But um, yeah, yeah, it's, you know, but again, like even even beyond Kamala Harris, right, there are a lot of people who were you know, former attorney general, state attorney generals or prosecutors in some form or another. Um, and, and again, in both parties, and, and a lot of them do look at the encryption issue as being one that's important to them and, and you know, their, their former colleagues. So I'm going to stop playing uh, devil's advocate as I have been. Um, I, I'm kind of on the same page with you, but I, I'd love to think about this beyond a security versus privacy dynamic because we've talked about that you know the the argument that we're all making is that the the privacy aspect here is good the security aspect in terms of keeping our data secure is good if that leads to marginally less information for you know law enforcement maybe that's a cost but so be it but beyond just those 
you know, security versus privacy dynamics. Are there other ways that this could impact the technology sector or the way we communicate? You know, if something like this was to pass, I'm thinking about would it impact like big companies versus small companies differently? Would it lead towards a trend of open source versus closed source being more you know, favored? Can you think of any dynamics that are outside of that that typical thing we've been talking about that that you think are important to recognize? Yeah, I think there are a few different things. And, and again, like, you know, some of this is just crystal ball gazing. So who knows how, uh, we how encourage it, it would actually. <laughs> the hotter to take, the better. <laughs> uh, I mean, so, you know, to, to, to a first approximation, you have, you have this issue of um, how would foreign countries react to this, right? So if the U.S. requires backdoors and encryption, you can bet that, that certain other countries uh, and, for example, China, uh, which, you know, there's now all these debates about all these apps coming out of China and how they're bad and how we have executive orders that are going to ban them. Um, well, one way that, that, you know, China could hit back uh, on us is to demand back doors into Google and uh, Apple and Amazon and, and uh, you know, and Facebook. Um, and that's going to be an issue. So, you know, well, for so all of the talk from if from, I could if I could interrupt for a second, are there any countries already doing this? Because we're talking about this in the US, but are there any countries that already require backdoors through encrypted systems? Um, so Australia recently passed a law that effectively does require it. And, um, and it's still sort of being sorted out what that actually means. But um, one fairly large, successful technology company in Australia, Atlassian, which makes a whole bunch of, uh, you know, sort of uh, uh, enterprise applications, um, they have already complained and said that this this makes it much more difficult for them to be able to do business um, and certainly for enterprises to trust uh, doing business with Atlassian if they're hosting information in Australia where the government um, may be able to demand backdoors to, to any of that information. Um, and so I, I think, you know, that but that one it's still early and sort of trying to figure out what is what does the the Australian uh, rule mean. Um, there are inklings that that the EU might do something similar. There are certainly um, some requests for a similar uh, backdoor uh, rule across the EU. Um, I don't know of other countries that specifically have that requirement right now. Um, you know, there there may be some like authoritarian countries where nobody operates, anyways, right? That that will have rules like that. But um, uh, th those are the the main ones right now. In terms of you know, at the corporate level, you you definitely will have issues where you know, um, I'm sure the larger companies, you know, with any of these things, right? Larger companies are always going to be able to deal with uh, you know some sort of regulatory demand much more thoroughly. Than smaller companies, what would probably happen is smaller companies would have to rely on some sort of third-party yeah. technology, um, and that creates a whole bunch of other downstream effects, uh, and whether or not you trust the third parties or not, uh, and whether or not you feel that um, you know that those third parties are cost-effective or. And it would probably be it would probably be the tech giants, right? Like if we're thinking about third, like Google or Amazon would figure out how to do, you know, the encryption with a backdoor that is legally necessary, and then they would like license it and sell it to every other company. It, it seems um, like a they they 
They might, they might not. The question of whether or not they would license it, I don't know, right? I mean, so you could have like, there is a, a, a competitive aspect there of whether or not they would want to license it. I would imagine that they might, but you also might, you know, develop a market for a third party yeah. <laughs> encryption. Encryption as a service provider. kind of thing, yeah. Yeah, who who would sort of step in and 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 you could uh, you know license their their technology? I would guess that that's that kind of thing would happen, and then that would just become a cost of doing business for any other new startup. Um, and you know who knows how expensive that could be? It could be fairly expensive, especially if if law enforcement is constantly pinging them for access to 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 um, to their content. So ultimately, I know that you personally have spoken about this several times. You're you're outspoken about why encrypt, you know, strong encryption is a good thing. Which argument do you think ultimately has the biggest impact? We've mentioned several things that could go wrong without strong encryption. One is this argument we're talking about. It you know, it's a it's a regulatory burden. It's a cost on companies. Two is the argument: Do we even trust the government, like Edward Snowden style? Are they going to abuse this? Because um, the government abusing its power is not a new thing. And number three is, you know, does this weaken us in terms of, you know, hostile actors, whether that's hackers, that's foreign uh, state actors, does that weaken core parts of the infrastructure? Which of those three arguments do you think is actually your biggest concern in terms of why we should not do this? Or is, or is it something separate from those three? That's a good question. I, you know, personally, I, I usually will think of it in terms of who am I talking to, which argument is going to make the most sense for who I'm talking to, because different people are convinced by by different things. Um, to me personally, it's it's just the the general security of the internet for us and and how it works. Where if we're forced to do this, it it pokes a really big hole and opens up a real threat that that um, you know all of our private information. Um, you know whether that is our emails, our text messages, our credit card information, our health information. Um, any of that uh, is put at risk, and how that plays out in the long run, I don't know. It's not just a situation where it's like you know someone hacks my emails and dumps the entire emails like on WikiLeaks or whatever. Um, I think it, you know, it, you have other riskier situations where if somebody can hack into your emails much more easily, then they can start to do other things, you know, whether it's pull some sort of scam or convince you that there's somebody else or, or do other things with it. Get um, into your Twitter and, account and, you know, and put a uh, Bitcoin message. Not that. <laughs> <laughs> that was, that's a really obvious one. And, and, and but that was, you know, part Part of the thing with that hack was was that like imagine if they hadn't used that hack in that manner and had actually used it to try and trick people for real, um, you know how much more nefarious that could have been. I keep saying that we got so lucky with that hack that it was just a bunch of kids, you know, trying to score some Bitcoin. Um, yeah, that, but, that was my uh, favorite game on the internet for a few days. There was this running theory after uh, – for listeners, the, the background obviously being when Elon Musk and Barack Obama and and quite a lot of people had their Twitter accounts uh, compromised and there was a Bitcoin hack. But people started speculating how much money could you make from this with you know like releasing certain tweets under Elon Musk's Twitter? Like what, <laughs> what would you actually do? You know, if you wanted to start World War III, how could you do it? Yeah. 
Yeah, uh, let's not speculate. <laughs> but 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 yeah, I mean that's the thing. Like if you if you were to to crack encryption, or if you had sort of weakened encryption, and and nation state actors, for example, wanted to try and get in and do something really nefarious, um, yeah, I mean let your imagination run wild. There's there are a bunch of different things that could happen, um, and I, I think that could be very very scary in the long run. And and you know as such goes against the idea that we need to, these backdoors to encryption for our safety. I think the reverse is true. All right. Well, we're running up on time here pretty soon. So I'm going to end with a question that I'm trying to use more often now. I'm trying to make this the new ending question to the podcast. And I'll throw this to Alec and uh, Mike both. If someone wanted to learn more, if someone's intrigued by this, they want to learn more about encryption, they want to learn more about this legislation and more about the arguments behind what we're talking about right now, what would you recommend for them in terms of books, articles, research papers, other podcast episodes, just websites? Where should they go to learn more? I'll start with that. So I'll give I'll give two recommendations. So one, I think the Electronic Frontier Foundation, EFF, they do they've done great work on this. If you want to learn more from the civil civil libertarian perspective, but they write a blog post whenever new legislation's released, they're really on top of this this issue. And they're pushing and advocating for their position very strongly. So check them out. And then I don't know if Mike would do self-promotion, so I'll do it for him. Check out TechDirt's <laughs> website. Uh, I do they, love TechDirt. He, blogs, uh, he brought, blogs prolifically. I've learned a lot from Mike. That's why I wanted to have him on as the guest today. Um, so definitely follow Mike's work and follow his, him on Twitter as well, Mike Masnick. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks thanks for that. Um for people who want to learn more, a couple of things I would recommend. One is this paper called Keys Under Doormats. Um, and it was written by a bunch of very, very smart, uh, mostly technologists, um, cryptographers, um, talking about the, the encryption fight and, and what's at stake. Um, it's a really good paper. It is not nearly as technical as it might otherwise have been, given the the authors of it. Um, and then another person I would suggest following is uh, Rihanna Pfefferkorn at Stanford, um, who she's at the um, Stanford Center for something, Internet and Society, something like that. <laughs> uh, and she, she's she's written a ton on uh, about encryption and about these bills in particular. And she is very very thorough and very very careful um, and very very just really really great stuff. And so th those would be my recommendations for people trying to keep up on this. All right. Well, it'll be interesting to see where these uh, where these bills in Congress go and just what the future of encryption holds because it does seem pretty much up in the air right now. Mike, Alec, thank you guys so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks. This was fun. Thank you. Thank you.